and I got a job in the public service of Canada. I hated it. You know, I hated my life. I just like woke up and like put my head in my hands and thought like, oh my God, I hate my life. I cannot believe this is what I, I, I'm going to do for the next 50 years. The, the guy in the cubicle next to me, his screensaver was a countdown to his retirement. And like... <laughs> And like, it wasn't close. It was like 17 years, 10 months, six days. I'm Dr. Ethel Tunkelhun, an assistant professor of politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. Lately, I have been feeling depleted, disillusioned, and angry. The past few weeks, nay months, have been challenging because I am confronted daily with just how inhumane, how unkind, and how hostile academia can be, especially for women of color. We are expected to research, to teach, and do service similar to other professors, but we are also expected to do so much more from providing a lot of emotional labor, to being asked to be the voice of diversity, to proving that we make our institutions more progressive for being different but that we are not too different to be threatening. As my beloved friend and colleague, Dr. Rita DeMoon says, racism is a workload issue. In truth, I sometimes wonder, when do I sit down and when do I fight back? How can I keep fighting for change, knowing that the neoliberal academy is, at the heart of it, racist and sexist? How do we keep plugging along knowing that the fight is, in many ways, never-ending and sometimes even futile? To answer these questions, I talk to my good friend, Dr. Deborah Thompson, that is Anti-Deb for you. Yay! So we have Deb, Anti-Deb. Um, Anti-Deb, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Deb Thompson. I am an associate professor of political science at McGill uh, University. I'm also a Canada Research Chair in Racial Inequality in Democratic Societies. Awesome. And I'm one of Ethel's great old friends. Yeah, so how long have we known each other now? I was I trying to know. do the math earlier. 2006, I feel like is when you started your PhD. So 10... I started in 2005. So 15 years, is the math right? Yeah, good for us. Um, what were some of the things about the graduate program, if you can remember, uh, that was just kind of weird to you, right? Like, because there are everything. norms, everything, like what? Everything. Like, like, well, I know. I, so I think, I, you know, I thought about this a lot and like, I knew nothing about doing a PhD while I was doing a PhD. And I think this is really common among, you know, students of color and first gen students. And, you know, I was both of those things. And so, you know, I, I had no idea about the job market. I had no idea about publishing. I didn't know what CPSA was. I remember <laughs> our friends talking about going to CPSA and Congress. And I was like, okay, that that sounds fun. Is that something that you do for fun? You know, I had no idea what was, uh, you know, what this industry entails. I really had had no idea about any of it. You came in probably with the same base knowledge as me, zero. Mm -hmm. Um, What were some of your 
tactics in terms of trying to learn all of these things, the hidden curriculum that mm -hmm. some of her peers whose parents are professors knew already. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the best thing that I did, um, honestly, was anytime I got um, anyone, you know, a professor it, during their office hours or anyone at conferences, I would kind of corner them and say, you know, what did you wish you knew when you were in my position? And I had a little notebook and I would like write it down. And I, and at the end I had this notebook of like really, really helpful advice. So that's kind of, that was, that was one really important thing. Um, the other thing was that, you know, I, I was, I, I take advice, you know, I, I really do. I absorb it like, like a sponge. And so when people gave me advice, I, I frequently would, would pay like very, very close attention. I, I wrote it down. I paid heed to it. Um, and I would, I would follow it you know, as much as possible, except when people told me not to worry, you know, cause a lot of people <laughs> would be like, well, a lot of people were like, you're smart. You'll be fine. And I was like, you don't know that white person, you know, like, mm -hmm. like in, in, in what world have black people ever just like been able to be mediocre and have been fine? Going back to kind of the advice that you've been given and you kind of listening and taking notes, but also recognizing that some of the advice is better suited for white folks mm -hmm. as opposed to black folks. How did you kind of sift through that? Were there people whose advice you took more seriously than others? Or were you kind of pairing that with lived experience as well? Like, let's talk about yeah. being black in the academy and being black in grad school, because you were the only one. I was. Deb, you were the only one. <laughs> I, I was, yeah. You know, and our, our PhD program was huge, right? There were like 150 PhD students at any given time. Let me give you the optimistic version. Okay. Is that, <laughs> the first optimistic version is like, you know, I, so I work in, in race and ethnic politics. I, I particularly now am invested in black politics. And for a lot of black people in the academy and in, in political science, like our goal is to get more of us in the academy, right? And so that means that my networks are really strong. That means that these like debates that shape disciplinary norms don't factor into, um, the, the worth and value that we, um, we, we give scholarship in the same way, you know, so like most REP scholarship is quantitative, right? And, and I don't do quantitative work at all. And, and yet, like, these are black folks who are still like my biggest fans and have, have worked really hard to, to give me opportunities. So that's kind of like one part of it. The other part of it is I wanted like, just have like a word of caution because, you know, in, in, in black families, we have a saying and it's, you know, not all, not all skin folk or kin folk, you know, most frequently the people who have um, done me harm have been uh, women, frankly, who mm. uh, claim to be women of color who mm. aren't, <laughs> you know, we could talk about mm -mm. those like really mm -hmm. tricky definitions, um, mm -hmm. who like have these like really weird territorial understandings of research and their identities and how they present themselves in the world and, and, you know, have seen me for varying reasons, like as, as threatening, um, and have really tried to sabotage my career. Right. So like, you know, so I want to like put those two things side by side because I'm not, I don't want to tell your audience that, you know, to trust all people who claim to be people of color, um, because like that has not been the case. Um, all I can say is, you know, use your judgment, be discerning. Um, you know, I think that, that how we treat 
people who have less clout from us is a good indication of, you know, how we, we treat people generally speaking, right? Like you can tell a lot from people by the way they treat admin assistants and, and oh, custodians, gosh. you know, so um, that's what I pay attention to. So I guess that's also one thing I wanted to talk to you about, right? So lately, I've kind of been thinking about the neoliberal academy and how it's supposedly a space where great ideas flourish, where, you know, um, ideas concerning social justice and norms concerning social justice flourish. And yet there seems to be a disconnect between the ideas that we talk about and the practices of these institutions. And you yourself alluded to how you've been burned by people uh, within these institutions. Uh, and this is a hard ask, right? But I guess I just wanted to hear your reflections on when do we fight back? When do we step back? And how do you know uh, when to do either one? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, so let me, let's take this from, from the beginning. Cause I've been thinking about this a lot too, like how we conceptualize universities, right? Because universities, you're right. They purport to be these spaces where, you know, ideas are debated, right? The, the places where, where research is done, but universities are also a lot more than that, right? They are corporations, they are uh, bureaucracies, incredible bureaucracies, right? Second only to the government. They are communities, right, that are oriented towards so social justice. Uh, they are brands. They are, uh, you know, cogs in the wheel of, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism, right? There are a lot of things. Um, and they are, you know, as I think we know, like the upholders of like white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity, Right. They are, they are all of these things at the same time. The way that I think about the university is I think of the university, uh, and the various universities where I've worked. And as you know, I've worked at several, um, as being like structures of domination. And, and, and they're, they're like any other structure of domination in that we all participate in them. We don't have like much of a choice in that way. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about what Joel Olson wrote. He wrote a book called The Abolition of White Democracy uh, years and years ago. And he passed away, actually, slightly just after he wrote the book. And one of the things he wrote in his preface is like, what what do I do with my time on this earth to destroy white supremacy? Mm. Right? Like, how do I destroy white supremacy while I'm here, given the short time we all have? And so, you know, I don't think that... You know, we can, we can ask the same question of the university, right? Like the, the question isn't how can we destroy universities? You know, how can we destroy higher education while we're here? The question is like that, that's posed by, you know, Moton and Harvey in, in the undercommons. Like how do we become subversives? Like within the structure, this structure of domination? How do we become fugitives? My goal has always been to, to try to become a subversive, even as like, you know, in other ways, I understand that I am complicit in, in this structure of domination, right? Like, God, I used to work at a private university in the United States where our tuition was 55 fucking thousand dollars a year. Can That's I swear on this nuts. podcast? As a, as a Canadian, I'm like, what? I know it's wild, right? It was, it was, it was, it was morally, you know, <laughs> morally corrupt, right? Um, absolutely. Um, you know, and so we are, 
part of the system that that is much more about the consolidation of wealth than about social mobility. And so, like, what are we going to what are we doing to to be subversive while we're here? Um, like, I think there's a lot of ways, right? Like, I, I, I listened to the podcast that you that you, when you had um, um, Nisha and Miriam on, Woo-hoo! and I yeah, know it was great. It was a great podcast, and, and you know, you and you talked about the burden of overwork which I recognize, but I also want to put out there that like time theft is my favorite kind of collective action, right? Like steal your time back, steal your time back. How do you say no? Or how do you, I I do say no. I say no a lot. Um, I, I don't, I don't work more than eight hours a day. I don't work on weekends if I can help it. Um, in part because like, this is a job, right? This is a job. This is not my identity. This, you know, I, and this, I think this comes as well from like switching employers fairly often Mm. because the university is my employer, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. I remember I had this like very clear moment when um, I was working at Ohio University, which was terrible for the record. And um, (laughs) um, the student came in and asked me something about like, if I was going to contribute to like the Ohio University, like fundraising campaign. No, I know. And I was like. I was like, do you understand the way like employer employee relationships work? Like, no, I'm not giving my employer money. <laughs> like, no, they should be paying me more money. Like, absolutely. <laughs> That's not, you know, like, no. Um, so yeah, like time theft, steal your time back, um, create like little radicals um, in our students as much as possible. Right. Whenever, when I was working in the U S one of the things I would do is like, anytime I could talk to student athletes, I would be like, yes, let me talk to student athletes. Let's talk about unionizing. Right. Let's talk about how much money the university of Oregon is making off the back of unpaid black, like black people. Um, because look like our end game, we study race politics. I study race politics. You study, you know, migrant politics. Like I want, I, I don't want to do this. Right. I want to be out of a job. Right? I don't want to live in an anti-black world, mm, right? Mm-hmm, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to live in a, a world that is characterized by white supremacy and heteronormativity and patriarchy. I want to live in a world that is like egalitarian, mm-hmm. really, right? And so like my best case scenario is I am not needed anymore. Let's talk about pushback, right? Because mm-hmm. certainly <laughs> if we... I mean, I can't tell my employer, okay, well, my goal is actually to abolish this. And they'd be like, no, our goal is to sustain this, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, knowing a little bit about your, uh, you know, movement through these different institutions um, and also some of the pushback that you've received in becoming, um, you know, the person who complains and becoming, you know, through through being one of the only, if not the only black professors, becoming the site of a lot of, you know, (laughs) white anger. How do you kind of, Mm -hmm. how do you kind of maintain your health while also pushing back? I mean, when do you sit down and when do you push back? So I have a couple things to say about that. One is that I think that a lot of people think like, when I get tenure, I will, you know, do X, Y, Z. Um, XYZ for the Americans listening, you know, and (laughs) when I get a job, I will be better positioned to do this. And like, yes and no, right? Like, because I think it it reminds me a lot of like New Year's, you know, like every New Year's we're like, this year I will go to the gym every day. And it's like, y'all, you know, if you weren't doing it on (laughs) November 15th, you're not going (laughs) to do it on January 15th, right? Like people, people don't like substantiate 
substantially change, right? And so, like, if you're going to have this commitment, um, you know, like, people grow, and I feel like I've grown a lot. I feel like I've learned a lot um, during my time in the academy. Um, but I feel like people who are waiting to have security to take those risks, like, in, if you're not going to take it now, you, you aren't going to take it then, right? Mm. That said, there is something powerful about being the only one when you get to be in my position, right? Like, mm. So when you're like, I'm an associate professor, I'm a CRC, um, and all of a sudden universities turn around and they're like, huh, we don't, we don't have any black folks, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, but, but we have Deb and she's the only one and holy shit, we can't lose, you know, we can't lose her. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden I have like much, much, much more power than I did when I was a grad student, when I was a postdoc, when I was a junior faculty. And like the irony is I wouldn't be the only one if universities would not systematically push out people of color, mm. right? Like we get filtered out of undergrad. We get, we don't get into grad schools. We don't make it through grad school. We don't get postdocs. We don't get tenure, tenure track positions. We don't get tenure. And then all of a sudden people are fucking surprised when like, we're the only ones in the room. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like, mm-hmm. A, like, of course it, it's structural. It's structural. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so that being said, like there, there is an incredible power to being the only one, especially in a moment when people in these environments are really, really worried about appearing to be racist. So that's kind of like one, one part of it. The other part of it is like this, this is a job, right? Mm-hmm. This is a job. And like all of, all of the, the, the moral credentialing, all of the, uh, not all, of, not all of the struggle, Right. But all of the ways in which we seek love from institutions that are fundamentally incapable of loving us back is Mm. part of the trick of neoliberalism. Mm. And I'm not doing it anymore. This is resonating so deeply because we do want the institution to love us back. Right. This is why we try to go over and beyond what's required of us. Right. And then you're saying, nope, (laughs) nope, no more. Nope. I don't, you know, like I, you know, I, I care about a lot of things. I care about my students deeply. I care about my colleagues. I care about my friends. I, I love my children more than life itself, but like, I, I do not, like, I refuse to care about like white supremacy in a way that like tricks me into protecting it. So how do these tricks manifest? I mean, what are some of the ways you've been tricked? <laughs> so many ways. <laughs> like buying into the brand mm. you know i we had a discussion a few months back about like honorifics and like mm. you know i know we disagreed on that but like even buying into um that this honorific is worth anything other than you know creating uh, other than a mechanism to create um divisions between you know the working class and the, the white collar class i don't mm. buy that um the ways which, you know, the mistakes I've made, God, like the, the ways in which information is currency and it's possible to accrue debt, right? The, the toxicity and ubiquity of the rumor mill, um, the, the ways that um, like white supremacy manifests not just in individual behaviors, even though like there have been, you know, saboteurs, um, oh, yeah. but also the ways that like um, rules and policies and, and processes 
value precisely those things which are exclusive. And like what I mean by that is like we know, so for example, we value prestige in the academy. Mm-hmm. We love it when people from Harvard, Yale, Princeton apply to our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many how many black students do you think Harvard admits a year into its PhD program? Mm-hmm. Right? Like one, maybe. And so those things that we value are precisely the same things that are likely to like to exclude us. Mm. Right? And then and then again, and then we wonder why the pool isn't diverse, right? Um Yeah, I mean I mean like all of the the hidden norms, going back to our, our initial conversation about the the hidden curriculum, the ubiquitous nature of like conflict avoidance. So oh my God, conflict yes, avoidance. Yes, absolutely. Because then you're being kind of, you know, there's different scripts, right? And I've had mm-hmm. to learn this a lot. And in the academy, you can't ever just say what's no. wrong. It has to be kind of lumped into. It's like grading. You got to have it like a compliment sandwich. <laughs> Right. You say something nice and then you say like a softly like a, a, you know, a soft pedaled criticism and then you say something nice. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, which uh, is not something I've ever, ever learned. Right. Like because, you know, in my family, if you have an (laughs) issue, you just say it. But then if you just say it in these spaces, then you're read, especially if you're if you're a woman of color, you're read as angry. You're read as irrational. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, I get read as um, kind of being like too Americanized actually now. Now that really? I'm back in, yes, yes, because it's like, you know, Canadians are so polite <laughs> and so indirect, right? Um, and and just like kind of saying what the problem is, is, is not not appreciated. That's interesting. So in, in the States, when you were there, were you read as being like, how, like how were these different readings of you I mean, uh, manifest? I, I got I got read as being angry black woman, I think, a lot. Um, it depended on the place, you know, it depended on the place because, you know, I, I worked in an African-American studies department at one point, right? And so um, that had its own issues. Um, we, you know, we, could, we should talk at some point about the ways in which, um, you know, black studies, African-American studies, even like women and gender studies as mm-hmm. programs are often set up to fail, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whew. Um, and at Oregon, the you know, speak going back to the the question of, of aunties and, and uncles, right? Like I had some really good white allies at Oregon, and those were people who would like step in and, and take labor from me, you know, who would step in and prevent labor from being put on me, um, who would amplify my voice, who would call people out, right? And, and these were like white folks who who kind of knew the score. Um, and that's like, that's the definition of like good white allies, right? Like when you put yourself in danger for others. Um, and then I think the definition of, of cowardly white allies is when you don't. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that. Cause I think allyship is such an important conversation to be had. Right. Uh, so, you know, allyship isn't just kind of messaging you afterwards to say, yeah, I agree with you. It's mm-hmm. actually taking a hit and by taking a hit, you mean, what? I mean, I mean, like when people like actively, like, kind of like put themselves in in harm's way. Like I, and I actually had this happen at Oregon, where like I had said something um, about like there's a PhD student in in, in my in a program who had expressed some um, something had happened to her. I don't want to you know mm-hmm. yeah, totally. default any information, right? But like 
something had happened to her and she had expressed like a, a, an incredible discomfort to me as like uh, the only other woman of color. Um, and I kind of relayed that in the faculty meeting and a number of people in the faculty were like, whoa, 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 let, let's not extrapolate. And I had colleagues who were like, whoa, wait a minute. What I just heard happen was that a student of color came to Deb and told her, you know, that she was concerned about X, Y, Z. And then Deb told us, and then you dismissed her. Like Deb as the only woman of color, like, I, I, you know, and I think that we need to take these concerns seriously. Right. And the people who did that, like they weren't in any more or less powerful positions than me. Right. Like they could be seen as combative in doing that. And yet they, they still did. Right. That's beautiful because I think that's what allyship is. I think allyship is basically speaking up, amplifying and also facing the backlash if needed and not having um, the people of color uh, just kind of be in the line of fire. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I, I do a lot of talks to government agencies and NGOs and, and whatnot about like anti-racism. And I think that part of the challenge is like people in Canada in particular are like so uncomfortable around these conversations. Mm. And the only way to get good at this is to practice. How do you keep kind of fighting knowing that there's no guarantee, right? Because I mean, a part of me is like, hey, you know, in this conversation, I'm like, well, it's white supremacist. So I'm just going to ostrich, you know, <laughs> yeah. watch Netflix, right? Like mm -hmm. get I mean, manicures. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, doing nothing is always easier. Um, so like my logic in this Okay, this is, and this is going to sound maybe silly to people who are listening. So my apologies, right? But like, you know, we, this is like the easiest job I've ever had. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. honest to God. Like, I, you know, I worked at McDonald's when I was 15. I went home like smelling like fucking hamburgers. Like, dogs <laughs> would follow me home after like a 12 hour shift, right? Mm -hmm. I worked at a grocery store. You know, when I was when I was 17, I had three jobs in my undergrad because I was so fucking poor. Mm -hmm. This is sitting in my office. They mm -hmm. pay me to think. They pay me to write. They pay me to teach like future generations how to be decent people. Fucking easy. Easy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so the only thing that makes this job morally salvageable is the fight. I really love this. I feel like it's a call to arms. And I also think, you know, it reminds me of this conversation I was having over WhatsApp with a few friends who, you know, my grandmother, uh, Josefina, you know, and Teresa, uh, they grew up under World War II Japanese occupation. And honestly, sometimes I like get so agitated about these bullshit fights and the white supremacy uh, machinations of universities, right? But mm -hmm. on the other hand, you're right. Like, my grandmothers would be like, really? I mean, and that's not to say, like, what we do, like, it's not worthwhile, right? Like, I, like my goal, and I think that many people in my network have the same goal, including some of my, my best favorite white allies. Like, my goal is to get more of us in, in the academy, right? Like, and that in and of itself is important. And, like, it's not to say, like... You know, my students, I just finished teaching this great honor seminar on the politics of race. And like a bunch of my students were like, you are the first like woman of color like I've had as a professor. And that was really meaningful. Right. And so like representation is not everything, but it is it is something right in the ways in which we are able to change like people's 
people's worldviews. Like that shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah. And I really kind of like how uh, you talked about the importance of representation. Our presence matters. Certainly mm-hmm. I've received emails from students being like, you know what, you are my only Filipina prof ever. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, and I, I kind of I feel I feel I feel all the feels when I receive emails like that. Love those emails, actually, like because then, mm-hmm. you know, you know that you're making an impact. But you're also saying it's also about the larger structural fight. So it can't just be both. It, it can't just be one or the other. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can't, you know, and also, you know, while universities are busy trying to recruit and retain black faculty, you know, I don't know where they're going to get them from, because again, we have been systematically pushed out of graduate programs for generations, right? Um, Like, I think it's important to think about like the environment in which we are recruiting all these new black faculty, all these new indigenous faculty, all these people of color into you know, we are, we're recruiting people into these environments that are frequently like really, really toxic without any of the tools, you know, to, to effectively combat that toxicity without any of the power to combat that toxicity. Like, what are we, what are we bringing folks into? We need to be really careful and really cognizant about, you know, how we can support junior faculty, um, how we can support our graduate students you know, how we can prepare them if, you know, if they want to be in here, like how we can help build their, their armor. What is the armor? I, I don't know what the armor is. The armor is like, you know, when you go into battle, like you, you have armor, right? You have weapons and you have protection, right? And, and like, make no mistake, man, like, like love is a battlefield, but so is the academy, right? So like, you can't go into meetings without your, your armor, Right. Um, and sometimes that manifests as over preparation. Mm. Right. Like and this is like endemic in for people of color where like, you know, you you go to your, your conference panel and you have your like 12 pages of single mm-hmm. space notes and like the white guy beside you is fucking winging it. Right. Like <laughs> because right. Because like, oh, they're so brilliant. Right. You know. Yes. So so sometimes your armor is being overprepared. Sometimes your armor is having good white allies that you can call upon. Right. Sometimes your armor is having people in the audience who will give you questions. Ethel, you have done this for me. <laughs> right. Sometimes your armor is is knowing like the situations and, 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 and having, you know, people on the inside who can tell you what the real deal is. Um, you know, but, but you like, you go in prepared in, in various ways because like we, cause we're in a fight, right? We're in a fight against white supremacy. It's a, and, and white supremacy is like a formidable opponent. After our conversation with Auntie Deb, I realized that being a subversive in the academy, creating fugitives who disrupt systems and push for change is key. Fighting for more representation is important, but fighting for structural transformation is equally important. That is our job. But we should also remember that this is still a workplace and we shouldn't be tricked into letting the fight consume us. And that's it for this episode of Academic Antis. I want to thank our guests Auntie Deb Thompson. I love her so much and so appreciate her wisdom and her friendship. This podcast was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, and produced by Wayne Chu. If you like the show, rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, leave us a review. They really help. Until next time, 
Take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.